It's good to be here this morning. Um, I'm going to read from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Well, good morning to all of you. If you would turn with me in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verse 32 this morning. The mystery of oneness. Ephesians 5.32, the mystery of oneness. Some of you have already taken seriously the admonition that we had last time to grow in oneness in your marriage. You're motivated to keep working together on this. But I imagine that some of you aren't yet convinced of its importance. Why is it that you, we, need to pursue growth in oneness in marriage? Well, in our text this morning, Ephesians 5.32, Paul is going to impress upon us why this growth in oneness is imperative. He'll, He'll teach us that husbands and wives must cultivate comprehensive oneness. Husbands and wives must cultivate comprehensive oneness as a visible example of Christ's oneness with His church. 
we have to work at this because it's going to be this visible example of Christ and His church. And that shows us why it is important. And let me, let me ask all of you who are married, does your marriage lead to Christ? And what do I mean by that? Does your marriage lead to Christ? Does it lead you to think more about Christ when you think about your own marriage? Do, does that make you think about Christ and His relationship to the church? Or if you think about the work that you are putting into, husband or wife, putting into growing in oneness, does this cause your spouse, when they see your work that you're putting into it, assuming you're putting work into it, does that lead them to think about Christ? And for those of you who have been widowed, think back to the oneness that you had in your marriage. And you can look there and look for places where you saw oneness and take the opportunities when they present themselves to glorify Christ in that and say, my wife and I, my husband and I, you know, before they passed, we had this area of oneness. We were far from perfect. There were areas I wish we'd grown in. We hadn't. But here was an area that we did. And this, I could see Christ in that. And testify of that. Back to the married. Does your your marriage ever present or produce gospel conversations with your kids? When they they see, wow, see how you and dad or you and mom have this. Do you take that as an opportunity to say, well, it's pointing to something bigger. And let me tell you about that. What about gospel conversations with your neighbors when they see that you're not like the other people on the block? Not that you're better than anyone else, but you're different. At least you should be. And do they ever say things like that? Well, y'all are different than the rest of us. And I'm like, well, let me tell you why. We're not better, but we've found one who is. What about conversations with your co-workers or other acquaintances that you have. For those of you who are not married, are you observing the public side of marriage for couples around you that you know in the church, for example? Are you looking for reasons to glorify Christ? Do you look at their marriage? And and yes, all of our marriages, we have things that need to change and grow in and But are you looking for the things, not just to maybe help us and pray for us on these things, but are you looking for things like, wow, I can see a oneness there in in their relationship. And, And that reminds me of Christ and how He loves the church. And do you pray for those married people around you to continue growing and to continue revealing Christ's oneness, picturing Christ's oneness in those marriages around you? Husbands. We're still technically in the section that is designed for us. And and so, obviously, remember that, that much longer section than the wives had. While your wife is also responsible for working on oneness in marriage, this isn't one-sided, it's not just the men that have to work on it. But it is our responsibility as husbands to see that we are working on it. 
That's, that's why we have this longer section. Because we're responsible to see that love happens in the home, that we are working on this growing in oneness. So let's look into our text now to see how Paul shows us why it is that growing in oneness is so important. Our first point that we'll take up here as we look into this verse is this. Comprehensive oneness in marriage is a mystery. Comprehensive oneness in marriage is a mystery. I want to back up and and read most of this section about husbands and wives before us. So let's back up to verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Let me read the text. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. And as, as we're doing this, I want you to watch for what we've been trying to draw out here, how Christ-centered all of this is. You know, we, we look at these passages like this and we talk about, okay, husbands, this is what you need to do, and wives, this is what you need to do, and sometimes miss the Christ-centric nature, the Christocentric nature of this passage, which I've been trying to bring out amidst us talking about, okay, what do we do? But, upon whom must our eyes be fixed? So, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, how? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present her, present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But, I'm speaking in reference to Christ and His church. So we said comprehensive oneness is a mystery. Paul said, this mystery is great. Why does he use the term mystery? Well, earlier in Ephesians, we looked at this term mystery already, for example, in Ephesians 3, And we talked about how in the New Testament, mystery doesn't refer to something that is mysterious. Now, marriage and oneness in marriage is mysterious, but what Paul's talking about here is something different. When he used the term mystery, he says it's something that was previously hidden from mankind, and it was something they couldn't determine or or they couldn't um, figure out on their own. They couldn't discover this on their own. But in God's timing, He revealed His plan. So something about God's plan that hadn't been revealed yet. It hadn't been revealed in the Old Testament, for example. And we're going to see that. 
but now it has been revealed. Now, some people, you know, throughout uh, religious history, they talk about uh, mysteries as if this is, you know, only the initiated, only the super spiritual can achieve, you know, this knowledge. And we see that in, within Christendom even, uh, came, coming from originally the pagan religions. <clears throat> but that is not what Paul means by mystery. A mystery is a truth which had been hidden, but now has been revealed. And just to make a, a comment, uh, additional comment, on this term mystery, um, Jerome in his Latin Vulgate use the Latin term sacramentum, but he didn't mean it in the newer sense of a sacrament. He actually meant it in the old sense of the word. Sacramentum originally meant a mystery, just like this. And that's why he used the term. And so uh, subsequent generations after him uh, either didn't understand that or, or decided to use a newer version of that word and call marriage a sacrament. And they use this verse to say that marriage is a sacrament. That's not at all what Paul's saying. It's a mystery. It's something that had been hidden. God didn't reveal in the Old Testament. But now it has been revealed in the New Testament. <clears throat> so we saw this, this term, as I said, mystery in Ephesians 3. And it referred to the concept of the church, where believing Jews and believing Gentiles are brought together into that one body, the church. Okay, so mystery there refers to the church and this whole idea of God bringing together Jews and Gentiles by faith into the one body. Okay, that's one use of the New Testament term for mystery. Another one was in, in Romans 11.25 where mystery refers to the partial hardening of Israel during the church age. And so Paul makes it very clear in Romans 11 that Israel, if they don't turn, those that don't turn to Christ, they are hardened for now. But that's only a partial hardening. It's only going to happen for a time. And then there will come a point toward the end in which God will pour out His grace upon Israel and, and the Jews then will turn to faith in Christ, to Jesus the Messiah. Okay, so the mystery referred to a partial hardening because the Old Testament didn't talk about the partial hardening. And that's why some of this in the New Testament was bewildering to them. So what does it refer to? What does mystery refer to here in Ephesians 5.32? Well, this mystery has two aspects. And we're going to look at both of those. The mystery here that he's talking about when he says this mystery is great, there are two aspects of it. First... Paul's talking about the mystery that was there in the previous verse. There, when he talks, you know, quotes from Genesis. The, the mystery there is the comprehensive nature of the oneness that's now clearly revealed by Paul. Remember back in verse 28, he said there that no one ever hated his own flesh. And there he's talking about flesh in the sense of, and he tells us, synonym, himself. It's his whole self. And that's where we get that idea of the comprehensive oneness. And so a lot of people will look at this and they think that it's just this oneness is only talking about physical intimacy within marriage. And it does include that. And that's kind of the picture for, for married couples to think in terms of, yeah, we are to be, we're to come together and be one. But as we showed last time, there are those eight different, sort of seven more ways in which we are to become one. 
and with the physical oneness being a picture of the others. And so to help us understand that we need to become one in all those different ways, that comprehensive oneness. So our two whole selves become one, not just our bodies. That's the first aspect of the mystery. And he, he, he then he quotes in verse 31, Genesis 2.24, about the man and the woman, the two becoming one. You remember Adam in the creation account there in Genesis 2. As he realized what God had done, and God, you know, obviously had to tell him you know, some things, but he also saw the scar, you know, where, you know, he's missing a rib now. And, and so it's like, okay, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, literally, Okay. Well, then Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, let me tell you what this means. That a man should leave his parents, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay? And then, that's what God had intended by that, but He didn't tell us that He intended more. Not yet. He had more to say about that but not until Paul. And it is here in Paul's explanation that we come to understand this comprehensive nature of oneness. It's a mystery because it was not revealed before. Moses didn't reveal that aspect of it. So that's the first part and the first aspect to this where flesh and self, the whole self, or equated to the same thing. So, Paul says, if a man and his wife are to become one flesh, it means the whole of both of them becoming one. And those, as we identified, at least eight different ways. Oneness in marriage should be comprehensive. That is the first aspect of this mystery. See, it hadn't been revealed in the old, now it has been revealed in the new. Before we look at the second aspect of this mystery, though, Let's notice one more detail that we find here in this verse. So second, this mystery is more significant than you might realize. This mystery is more significant than you might realize. We can go to the next slide and you'll see that. So you see we're moving through his argument here as he's explaining. He says that this, verse 32, this mystery is... Great. It's great. By that, he means it's important. It's profound. The significance of this mystery is more complex than you might have realized. So as you read, and you've read many times Genesis 2.24, and you thought in terms of, okay, well, it means that they will come together in, in physical intimacy. You didn't realize that there was more going on than that. And you also didn't realize that there's a second aspect that we'll get to in a minute. As uh, Dr. Honer says, that this mystery is two-pronged. You know, there's like, like two parts to it, two prongs. If you had like a fork with, you know, those you know, meat forks you use in barbecue, you know, just the two prongs. You know, it's a, this mystery has two prongs to it. And so we've looked at the first prong, if you will, It's the comprehensive oneness within human marriage. But that comprehensive oneness 
points to an even greater truth. So what we've talked about here with our marriages, and we talked a lot last time about, is that it's pointing to something even greater. Look again at verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So this mystery, number three, this mystery illustrates the oneness between Christ and his church. So the oneness that we have, this comprehensive oneness we have in our marriages, our human marriages, it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to the oneness between Christ and his church. And we know this, first of all, by the word but he uses. I'm not talking merely, he says, about human marriage. He is talking about it. He's talking to husbands. You know, you need to work and lead in this. But he says, that's not all I'm talking about. And I have something even far more significant to enlighten you about. He's he's saying here, I, I want to tell you about the end, the goal, the ultimate that this, that human marriage is pointing to. This is significant. This is important about human marriage and the oneness we are to have. But he says, there's something even greater. What was all of that about? What was Genesis 2.24 ultimately about? So Paul has told us on the one hand that it's about more than we thought at our first reading. And Paul says, oh, and it's about even more than that. And I want to tell you about that. So the second part of this mystery, the second prong... Paul says he's speaking with reference to Christ and the church, something far greater. And so comprehensive oneness in marriage, human marriage, is a living example of the oneness between Christ and his church. Our marriages, and especially the oneness of our marriages, is a living example for for others to see, for us to see and for others to see that, wow, that is a picture of Jesus and the church he loves. And so... Aspect number one of the mystery points to the greater aspect number two of that mystery. As we've been talking about throughout this whole section, and as I tried to bring out as I read this section again, this section of Scripture, is that it is so Christ-centered. It's about Him. Everything is to be pointing to Him. And that gives such significance to marriage. You know, marriage isn't just about, you know, finding love, finding belonging, finding someone to share your life with, to, to have children, to have a family. and It's all those things, but it's not just that. It is more than that. It has an even greater significance to it. And John MacArthur made a very convicting comment. The Christian husband displays what he thinks of Christ by the way he treats his wife. Ouch. Right? All of you men, we can say, your husbands, we can say ouch. Right? Because we don't do that perfectly. A long ways from that. And he he made that comment in a devotional as he's thinking more deeply about God's Word. How we treat our wives, men, is of great or grave importance 
grave significance. If we're not working on growing in this oneness in our marriage, it means we're not interested in growing in our oneness with Christ. You see, it's that serious. And that's why it's so convicting. The comprehensive oneness in human marriage points to the oneness between Christ and His church. And as I said, that hadn't been revealed until the New Testament. Paul is telling us. He's revealing this. And so we have... That's why he calls this a mystery. And this whole mystery... Think with about this passage. So Christ died to redeem a people for Himself, Jews and Gentiles, that He would bring together into this one body, the church... His body. And He would make them holy and blameless. But as His body, He... This is, this is the point. He becomes one with His church. He becomes one with her. <clears throat> so, just so you understand the idea of mystery. Genesis 2.24. You read that, you think, Physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. Okay, yes, it is that. But you didn't realize that, oh, it's talking about this whole comprehensive nature of oneness with my wife and you ladies with your husband, right? Okay, so that's one aspect of the mystery. But just reading that by itself, you would not come to know this until Paul told us that this is ultimately about Jesus and His church and the, their oneness. He's the head and the church is His body. And you think about the picture of, of the human body where the head and the, and the rest of the body... You don't get more one than that, right? I mean, you know, our neck, you know, points to the oneness, okay? I mean, they we're so vitally connected. I mean, we, you know, I say vital, right? It has to be. And, and there's that connection there. And so, Paul is saying that there is this, between Jesus and His church, this deep, intimate, and profound bond that is so much like a person's head and their body. And His oneness, the oneness between Christ and His church, it, it flows from His sacrificial love. We read about that earlier in Ephesians 5. How He, he gave Himself for her. His sacrificial love is what produces this oneness. But then it's ongoing in that He is in the business of nurturing her and tenderly caring for her, as we also learned. So, what then does this oneness between Christ and His church, what does it look like? What is it exactly? You know, it's one of those kind of ideas that can be vague in your mind and you're like, I kind of get it and kind of don't, you know. So let's talk about what it means. What I did is I, I went into the New Testament and I looked for passages that use this language of oneness between Christ and His people, His church. And I looked for passages that used, talking again about Christ and His church, the head and body imagery. And so I went through those and looked at them and then collected them and, and then... As I did, I saw that it looked like there was that they'd fall into three categories. And I wasn't planning on this, but they did. 
And there's three categories that parallel we defined as biblical headship. You remember, guys, we said there were three key things about biblical headship. There is leading, protecting, and providing. And they fall into these categories, as I'm going to show you here in a moment. Now, one of the things that didn't dawn on me until this morning, I was giving Connie a, a preview, and, and so either she's a glutton for punishment or, you know. But we talk about it over breakfast, about what the sermon's going to be about. And, and, and as I was talking about this, it clicked with me like, well, the three aspects of what it what God's plan for a woman is to be. So we talk about you know maleness, but also femaleness. Okay, and so you might remember the those three aspects that we drew out God's intention for women. There is you know the uh, she's to be the helper, the giver of life, and nurturer. And I didn't have time to go and develop it more. And, and I think maybe we'll do that in a later time or something. And I'm going to encourage you to do that. But that was just jumping out at me. And I'll talk about it just briefly in a little bit. But it's amazing how all of this stuff just... As we're talking about the roles of men and women, how they all just come together. And there's overlap between them. And they all start to make each other make sense even more for us. And we can see that this is and this is how I've always noticed God's word being this way. It's so intricate and and the biblical truth is so woven throughout the scriptures. And the first time that dawned on me, uh, I was doing a study uh, trying to respond to Jehovah's Witnesses and, you know, how they try to change some of the texts, uh, a text of scripture and some of the words to think that they can get the deity of Christ out of the New Testament. But I found that if you go through the whole Bible, the deity of Christ is woven throughout it, even in the Old Testament. There are things that are said in the Old Testament that you'd have to go and change all of that to get the deity of Christ, which is revealed in the New, more particularly. But it's all this tapestry is woven together, and, and you can't just pull out a few threads and think you've done it. Because there's still many, many more threads there. And so I'm seeing that here in this, that that these threads are all woven together into this beautiful tapestry, first that we call marriage, but then that how marriage is is a, a tapestry pointing us to a greater tapestry. The love of God for His people. The love of Jesus for His people, His church, His bride. And, and so we're just going to kind of scratch the surface, but hopefully... I will have wet your appetite to want to look more into this. And again, as I said early on, this is not just for us married folks, um, because all of us should be thinking about this because it's about Christ. Okay. So I'm going to and pardon pardon me, ladies, that you know I only thought on the, the one level first about Christ's role in oneness, and so I'm going to categorize it by that. But understand that we still have to do some thinking on how those three areas of femaleness represents the church's response to Christ in oneness, okay? And I'll touch on that a little bit, but we need to think more about it. So, first, leading, first category. 
cultivating this this comprehensive oneness, as I've said, is the responsibility of the one who is head. You know, and a lot of guys, we think, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to be the head in, in marriage. In other words, I get my way and I get to boss her around and I'm the big dog. That's what we think. And it's like, nah, that's not it at all. You've complete, you missed it by miles. It's responsibility. You have the responsibility to see that you're, you and your wife are working to develop this oneness. To make sure that it is taking place. So, so as head, Christ leads the church. We saw that earlier in Ephesians 1 that at the end of that chapter. He's the head of the church. And then Colossians 1 as well. He's the head of the church. In other words, He has initiated everything. And that's why as we read through Ephesians 5.22 and following, we kept saying, Christ, 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 Christ. He's initiating all of it. He's the head. He's, he's directing this whole enterprise of Him, He and His church becoming one. And he, he, He's done it all in so many ways, right? He's initiated every bit of it. And then the second category, protecting. We read just a little bit ago in verse 23 that He is the Savior of the body. He has rescued His bride from sin and death, right? He's rescued His bride from sin and death. There's that protection, that protectiveness that, that God has designed in, in the role of men and women for the male to... to primarily do to protect, especially in reference to his bride. And then third category, and this one's going to be a lot longer, which you would expect it would be, <clears throat> providing. First, Christ provides a status change for us. So we go from hostility and alienation from God to peace and being reconciled to God. And we saw that back in chapter 2, didn't we? So you, you find... Here that he's providing for us this status change. We didn't accomplish it. We didn't say, okay, God, I'm going to start being nice now, so I'm going to reconcile myself to you. And God would say, no, it didn't work that way. Because the death has to happen. And so if we're dead, we can't reconcile. So Jesus died for us. He died in our place. You see, he reconciled us. He provided for this status change that we have between us and God. He's also provide, provided the privilege of being indwelt by our triune God, and we are their temple. You remember back in chapter 2, we, we talked about there, how He's building us together, Jews and Gentiles, believers all together, into this, this one house, this house of God. And so, as Peter would say, we're like living stones, and He's building us all together, and we are one day going to be the dwelling place of God. And there's not going to be that that holy of holies. That we will be the temple. But in, when Revelation says there will be no temple in it, it actually should be there's no holy of holies in it because God and the Lamb are the holy of holies. But what they're going to be inside the temple, which is us. The household of God. You see, you, you're not going to get a relationship any closer than that. God is going to live inside of us in that sense corporately. He does now through the Holy Spirit, but our triune God is going to make His temple inside of us, His people. And we saw there at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians 
Jesus provides for us to know Him in fullness. And here, the, the idea is, is that of us corporately more so. Philippians 3, you know, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Okay, that's talking more on the individual level. But all of us corporately, He still wants us as a church to know Him as part of this oneness with between He and His bride. Okay, next, uh, next group, still providing. He provides the privilege of participating in the love that the Trinity enjoys. You know, Jesus said that in, in John 17, didn't He? <clears throat> Let me read a few, just some selections out of that. In John 17, Jesus praying to His Father, As you, Father, are in Me, and I in you, and you see the oneness between the Trinity that they, the church, may also be in us. So there's this idea, you see how the oneness here is coming out? So that we, the church, would be in them, the Trinity. And then he says, and another, a little later, I in them, there's, there's the oneness of Jesus and His church. I in them. And you, Father, in me. And then he says, that the love wherewith you loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, he keeps bringing in this oneness idea. And so, I don't know if you, when you read uh, John 17, his high priestly prayers, we often call it there, in the garden. You, you, the oneness you probably thought about, as I have, is the one, he says, that they may be one. So all of us might be, uh, you know, unified and one. Completely missing how much he's talking about us being one with him. We would be in him, he would be in us, and that we would experience the love that he has with his father. And he's always had with his father. That we might enjoy that same love. He has provided that for us. And of course, John then would pick up on that in 1 John 4, right? And he, he talks a lot about, you know, the love of God and, and how he's given that to us. He also provides us with his joy. Uh, back in, in what we read earlier, uh, Peter read for us in John 15, verse 11. Uh, but he brings it up even in his prayer, Jesus does, John 17, verse 13. And then he provides us with his inheritance, Ephesians 3, 6. So, we're so, it's just like, typically the way things work is that, you know, you get married. And, you know, either spouse, their parents pass away, you both get the inheritance. That's normally how it works, okay? Well, that's kind of what Jesus is saying, is that I've inherited everything, and because I'm one with you, you're my bride, you inherit everything. You see, we all share His inheritance, how beautiful that is. You see, so, I don't know if you've seen this before, this whole concept of oneness, and how it's Marriage points us to that. Okay, and then the last group here. <clears throat> Still talking about providing. There's this oneness uh, that... See, oneness requires communication and having common goals. There has to be communication. And then, you know, we talked about goals, remember? That aspirational aspect of oneness, the having the common goals. But you're not going to have oneness if there's no communication. We talk about communication, godly communication between husbands and wives. 
there has to be communication. And so, if you would, you can keep your finger here. Uh, turn over to John 15, uh, if you'd like. And I'm going to read just one verse there, but you may want to just listen. <clears throat> I want you to watch for chapter 15, verse 7. I want you to watch for both oneness and communication. And think, well, okay, communication is only one way with Jesus, right? Because he doesn't talk to me. He didn't come pop down here and, and sit down and talk to me. Okay, well, watch for this. Jesus says there after talking about, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Verse 7, if you abide in me, oneness, oneness, if you abide in me. Now, communication. In my what? My words abide in you. So does Jesus talk to us? Mm-hmm. In His Word. We turn to His Word to hear what He has to say to us. And He has plenty to say to us. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, okay, what about us talking to Jesus? He says, ask. What is that? Prayer. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. So you see how there is this idea of communication. He communicates to us through His Word. And of course, we have to get in there. We have to read it. We have to think about it, meditate on it, study it. And then we talk to Him in prayer. He also provides us with His power. And we talked about, you know, husbands, your, part of your job is to provide for your wife to flourish as the woman God wants her to be. You need to provide everything. Jesus provides. He provides us with His power. And and for at least three things, three reasons, He provides us His power. John 15, power to bear fruit. We saw that. He gives us His power so that we will be fruitful. Second, He provides us His power so that we carry out His mission. And kind of hang on to that one. We'll come back to it briefly. He gives us power to carry out His mission. And He gives His church power without reserve. He gives, he gives us all the power we need. He's given us His Holy Spirit. And we have everything we need. Third, He gives us His power so that we will grow as His body. Again, you know, Ephesians 4, where He gives us the gifts. But He also gives us His Spirit who empowers those gifts. I think they're... Um, First Corinthians 14 or 12, rather. <clears throat> the, the Spirit energizes those gifts, puts power behind them so that His body grows. You see, just like, uh, especially, you know, you boys and young men, you continue to eat because you're, you're feeding your body because you want it to keep growing until it's full grown. And then grown men, we keep feeding it to, you know, sustain it, keep it strong and so forth. Jesus provides for His body so it will grow. His body being the church. So, you might be wondering, as I did, how how do these things line up with the eight areas of oneness we talked about for human, this comprehensive oneness in human marriages? And, and I don't know, I haven't you know, done this exhaustively, I don't know that there's an exact parallel for all of it, but... There are parallels, clearly. And maybe maybe we can line them all up. That's possible. 
Let me give you an easy one to get you started in your thinking. One of the areas of oneness we talked about, we brought out from Wayne Mack, was vocational, you know, in your work. And we mentioned just a minute ago that he empowers us to carry out his mission. You see? So that's one of the ways in which he, as our head, the headship of Christ over his church, as head, he provides. He provides his power. But he, you think, again, aspirational. Here's a second one. He has also told us what the goals are. And we share his goals. He's told us what his mission is. And he's put us to work in that. So vocational and aspirational come out in that. In that we are working with him, through him, to carry out his mission. Now, ladies, okay, I promised you to at least give you a little bit here. So how does that, how does that line up with femaleness? What did God create for you as females in the image of God? Well, okay, so if he's told us, I'm giving you my power so that you can carry out my mission, what do we do? We carry out his mission, right? So as a church, there's that helper aspect, right? So it's his mission. He's the head. But he says, I I don't want to do this by myself. I want to do it with you. I want you to go out into the world. I want you to carry this mission. I want you to go throughout the church and have this mission and build up the church and bring people into the church and through, through evangelism and so forth. Because we're one with him. And he involves us in that mission. So he provides the power we need. He provides the direction we need. And we follow. We are his helper in that. And ladies also think, okay, so helper, giver of life. I've mentioned that one back when we talked about this in relation to you ladies. Giver of life. How does that parallel? how, How is the church a giver of life? Think about Jesus' mission again. I just mentioned part of it. How are we as a church a giver of life? Evangelism, right? And and then there's... And this one's kind of intriguing. And, I, and this shows the complexity that I was talking about of this mystery, how complex it is. So we, we learned in Ephesians 5 that... Husbands are to be like Christ and to nurture our bride. Well, John, I thought you said that that was an aspect of femaleness, nurturing. Yeah? Something for us to chew on, right? These are not mutually exclusive. Because a wife will lead. She's going to lead the kids, right? And in that day where they had slaves in their household, she led the slaves sometimes. Right, so these, these are, are not mutually exclusive. It's just who has the, the, the primary responsibility to see that it happens. Right? And so, ladies, you can be thinking in terms of, and all of us actually be thinking in terms of, how, how are we as the church one with Christ and growing in oneness with Christ? You see, so as we are sharing the gospel with the lost, we're, we're, exercising our oneness with Christ we're saying Jesus I'm on board with your with your program your mission I'm drawing on your power to do this 
Because it's not us that saves them. It's Jesus who saves them, but He's not going to save them unless we open our mouths and tell them about Jesus. And so, you can see the complexity here with the, you know, the nurturing and all that and just thinking this through. And so there's, there's more work for us to do to think about this. How, what is this oneness between Christ and His church? And what parallels do we see to human marriage? So I'd like us to have ongoing discussions about how the oneness in our marriages can parallel Jesus' oneness with His church. And then for us to also pray that the Lord will use these to point people to Christ. You may not have thought of your marriage as an evangelistic tool. And, and kids, older kids, you know, you probably haven't thought about you know, looking at your parents' marriage and seeing the good things in that marriage and thinking about how, okay, that could be an evangelistic tool. I'm talking with one of my, one of my friends. And I can say, you know, it's really cool the way mom and dad work together on this. And it's just like the way that Jesus works together with his church. You, know, you probably haven't thought about marriage as an evangelistic tool, but it is. Because our goal is to point to Christ. And then finally, because again, husbands, this is in our section. This is you know, directed to us primarily. If you, if you won't put in the work necessary to build this oneness with your wife, if you won't do it for her sake, if you won't even do it for your sake, you absolutely must do it for Jesus' sake. You can't get around that one. You have to do it for Jesus' sake. As we come to the Lord's table, I want us to think about something that Jesus said earlier in, in John, before John 15. So back in John 12, He said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, they're talking about when He's lifted up on the cross, will draw all men to Myself. So as he's lifted up on the cross, he's lifted up in his ascension to heaven. He will draw all men to himself. That's not just talking about saving them. Because we know now by what Paul has revealed to us, that when he says, I will draw men to my people to myself, he's not just talking about saving them from hell. I mean, it is that first. But it's more than that. He's drawing them to Himself to be part of His body. To be part of His bride. To be one with Him. He is the head, is drawing people to Himself. That's His mission. And as His helper, we the church, get on board with that. And we grow in our marriages. We look at other people's marriages and glean the good things that we see, the oneness we see there. And we use those to point people to Him. So as we think about Jesus and, and how He gave Himself for us to be lifted up on the cross, His desire is to draw people to himself to be part of his body part of his bride to be one with him